welcome to the Green Majority. Uh, That's the first time I got to say that. This is Stefan Hostetter in the uh, live from the studio, and we've also got Darren K. Starnes Wayne and Kevin Farmer, as always, in the tech booth. Thanks so much, Kevin. So today we're going to have an interesting little time here. We're going to start with a, a call from Peru again. So this is the COP20 leading up to Paris, which is something we've been covering for a while now. And, and really, the, the, what the, the COP20 events uh, are leading up to Paris, which I just mentioned. But what we're looking at here is exactly what's happening there. We've got a call in from that. And then we have another, another segment after the music break. Uh, and then we've got Kevin Farmer, of course, uh, to close out the show. So that what we're doing right now is, we're, is we're, we've already got the person of Peru on the line. Um, but we're going to, first I want to sort of lay down the groundwork of what we're expecting. Uh, f- COP20 is in, is in Peru, Lima. Lima, Peru, sorry. Um, and and the qu- and what we're talking about here is what we've done over the last little while. Uh, the majority, there's going to be a video released uh, probably, I don't know, mid-next, early next week probably, uh, about sort of the lead-up that we've seen uh, to this event. So the COPs are very interesting. It for conference of parties, and it's sort of the decision-making body of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And really, if anything happens on the international scale of any real agreements, it's going to come from there. And so... But what's interesting about this is that sort of about maybe five, five, five years, six years ago, uh, in Copenhagen, uh, everyone sort of lost all interest. Uh, at least the, in, the at least the environmentalists lost interest in these sort of conference of parties because of the fact that we just didn't really see that there was any chance uh, that we were going to get any action. Uh, but leading up to this one, actually, which was, uh, in that, so they've last four or five, we've been focusing mostly on civil society, focused mostly on actually fighting for action on uh, climate change outside of the international realm. So we've seen them coming into local parties. We've seen them coming into, you know, fighting. You, you, most often the mayors have been a big issue. You, you, what's interesting about it is you see a lot of actual differences from how people talk about it in, on a local scene to an international scene. Sort of the local scene is really active and you really get a lot, you're getting a lot of really good, good, good sound bites there uh, and good actual action. Uh, but then as you scale up to the national level, you see sort of less, and the international as the sort of lag behind everybody else. Uh, but of course, some of that all changed when you got to the U.S.-China climate deal. Uh, and that has sort of re-sparked some actual interest in the possibility of a successful, uh, a successful action because of the fact that now you have two of the, three, two of the bi- world's biggest polluters uh, actually taking, pledging some action, then you've got the, the, the added bonus of the EU is already doing a lot. Uh, so people are starting to think maybe Paris is the place that will actually see some real action, uh, so, starting with what, Peru, which is why we have a call from Peru on the line. Um, I'm going to turn this over to Darren uh, for, the, uh, for the interview in just one second. Uh, thank you, person from uh, Environmental Defense. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. I wasn't briefed on exactly this. I'm not normally the person who is. I'm not. I'm not exactly normally the person who does conducts interviews. So I just know you're from Environmental Defense, and I'm sure you're a very cool human being. And we're gonna get to you in just one second. Uh, as soon as Darren sort of gets his headset on and set up. Um, Coming right in, folks. My apologies. Yeah, running home a little bit. We're gonna be talking to Dale. Dale from Environmental Defense. Uh, in just a moment, as soon as I get my laptop turned on. Stefan, did you know it's winter outside now? I did not know it was winter outside. It, it, that happened yesterday, and I, as I st- explained to someone yesterday, I actually just looked. I didn't look outside at all yesterday, so it was. It didn't feel like winter at all to me, because I was just inside the whole day. Um, but yes, so, so Dale oh, yes. from so the, yeah, let's set this all up. We are looking at the last conference of parties before what people expect to be the biggest one that we've ever had, or if we have any 
any hope of actually fighting this climate change issue. That's what's going to be. And this is the second call in a row we've got from Peru, and we are stoked to have it. All right. Dayard is putting on his headphones, and we are good to go. All right. Sorry about the delay. We're going to be talking to Dale Marshall. Dale Marshall is currently in Peru, and uh, I, I believe we probably already have him on the line. Thanks very much. So are you there, Dale? Yeah, I am. Okay, thanks so much. Sorry about the uh, the trouble this morning, um, but I'm glad we got you on the line. Thank you very much for your patience. We do very much appreciate it. Um, we did speak to somebody uh, last week from the Canadian Youth Delegation, and they were telling us a little bit about their experience kind of going there with, uh, as youth. And we were talking a little bit about the background. I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about the future, but in a moment, um, we've had a week of, of without updates. Can you tell us sort of what's been happening there immediately as this conference is wrapping up? Sure. Well, you know, the countries are essentially trying to set the table for next year and the negotiations are going to happen in the lead up to Paris. Uh, and so, you know, we're trying to set a framework for what, uh, what the negoti- those negotiations are going to be. There are some rules that need to be laid out in terms of when the countries need to have their pledges on the table. Um, you know, we need plans for how um, the financing that that's going to go to developing countries to, to help them address their climate change impacts. You know, how that is uh, what the timetable is going to be for ramping up that money over time. So there are a few, there are a few important decisions that need to be made here, um, as well as, as I say, sort of setting a, a framework for next year so that we do have a successful, you know, and ambitious um, legally binding agreement signed in Paris in December 2015. I know a lot of the history uh, about the talks and a lot of the reasons why it's been so difficult between the between the parties that are actually interested in action. The, the the stopping point has been sort of how to allot responsibility, and I've been seeing a lot of headlines from this COP basically saying this is the same story. If anything, that narrative is even higher. Can you can you comment on just on that sticking point about sort of uh, the sort of conflict, if you will, between rich and poor about actually dealing with this? Who's going to pay for it? Yeah. Um you know, this this is a an, uh, a conflict that continues, unfortunately, um, and essentially, it's it, you know, developing countries, um, you know, like, like even the larger ones that we hear about a lot, like China and India, um, you know, they essentially say that that the rich industrialized countries are largely responsible for the problem of climate change, which is true. Um, you know, the EU and the US and Canada and other con- other industrialized countries have been you know, putting up greenhouse gases into the atmosphere for 200 years since the the Industrial Revolution. Um, And the emissions in in China on a per-person basis are still much lower than they are in Canada and the U.S. And so they say that, that, you know, rich industrialized countries should be going first and fastest. Meanwhile, you know, the the government of Canada, which hasn't really had a very progressive stance on climate change anyway, points the finger at China and India as the problem because they're countries with large populations and therefore have large emissions, especially China, in total, uh, China being the largest emitter of, uh, of greenhouse gases. So Canada points the finger at China as the problem needing to move first. Now, Canada is running out of excuses, of course. As you mentioned, there's, there has been an agreement made by, between the U.S. and China um, Canada has agreed to follow the U.S. in its in its climate plans, and so um, so I, I think that those those tensions still exist, um, but they are slowly 
being resolved, I would say, uh, because the China-U.S. agreement really um, does allow for two countries at very different development stages to agree on a, you know, on a plan for the future. So one of the other stories that came out of last year, before we move into um, kind of forecasting uh, towards Paris, uh, one of the other stories that had a, a really big narrative um, was the story of Vieb Sanu, who was the uh, Philippine negotiator, who some were claiming may have been sort of pressured to step out of the negotiations uh, because he was such an effective voice for the for the poorer countries. I, I don't know if you were particularly uh, well versed on that particular story, but if you if you wanted to sort of um, comment on on sort of the the process, you were talking there about sort of the the, the people that want to come to the table and and what the disagreement was. Um, but what are what are really the poor uh, developing countries sort of saying, and how is that being received? Because from from reading the headline from you know 2,000 miles away uh, it, it really seems like they're laying out a pretty evidence-based case they're saying look we're gonna be affected here first we're already being affected we need your help and and the response seems incredibly cynical yeah um, well I mean the, the least developed countries basically the countries that are most vulnerable are the ones that have been have been playing a really positive role here and have been for a while so the alliance of small island states is you know, those small islands that are going to be inundated by sea level rise and are already in many ways affected by that sea level rise. You know, the least developed countries uh, and the countries that, like the Philippines, that are not a least developed country, but that are, you know, in the path of these increasingly strong uh, typhoons every year. I mean, it's the third year in a row that this COP is happening while a major typhoon is ravaging the, the Philippines. Um, so it's not surprising that uh, that you know, the, the greatest calls and the most urgent calls for action are coming from these countries that are at the forefront of climate change. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, there, there is a certain amount of cynicism that comes from the, the larger um, countries. And, and to, some, to a certain extent, that does include China sometimes, but it, but it certainly if, um, applies to um, countries like Canada and the U.S. Um, where, you know, these countries obviously don't have a lot of uh, global power, and so uh, it's, it's sort of, they, they do get marginalized in these, uh, in these discussions, despite the fact that they have, you know, a very strong case to be made that uh, the countries like Canada need to do a lot more. So moving forward now, coming back to Canada, there was a CBC uh, article uh, written recently with some footage from the uh, House Commons uh, showing Stephen Harper, uh, the Prime Minister here of Canada, uh, saying that regulating oil and gas industry would be crazy. He's made previous claims that, the, you know, well, people want to talk about this, basically, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he's like, well, people make big talk about this, but no sane country is going to do this. This isn't going to happen. We're not going to voluntarily do it, and nobody else is either. Uh, but not only is this... Um, not true if we forget the past. It's also not true already. I've seen a lot of really good uh, uh, social media uh, items with just sort of in, uh, infographics and stuff like that showing how there are already sweeping reg regulations all over the country and uh, all over the world in various countries, and, and they have various strengths, and, and some of them are more biting than others. Um, but it's patently false. Um, do, how much of do you think the sort of prime minister's lobbying of the public uh, to defend our, our resource sector, uh, is, is this going to catch up to him? Is, the, is there any sort of recourse to, to I mean, because it's a difference between sort of saying things that are ideological and saying things that are patently false. Um, right. I, can you just comment on that? I, I don't want to try and box you into a corner. What are your thoughts on that? 
No, well, I mean, it's, um, it remains to be seen what the political fallout will be for the, for the Prime Minister and, and his party. I mean, certainly polls should continue to show that Canadians are, do want to see climate change action. Um, but in one fell swoop, in one you know, comment in the House of Commons, the, the Prime Minister has essentially ripped up three promises that it made to Canadians and to the world. Um, we, we, we've been promising for, I say we, the, the federal government has been promising for seven years that it's going to regulate the oil and gas sector. Last year in Warsaw, our environment minister went to the COP and promised the world for, you know, not the first time that we would regulate the oil and gas sector. Now all of a sudden it's crazy, according to the government, to regulate that sector. So that's promise number one broken. Well, the government has also been promising to follow the U.S. in anything that it does in terms of climate change. Um, the U.S. does regulate its, its oil and gas sector. It put into place significant limits on greenhouse gases from the oil and gas sector in 2012. So that's promise number two that was thrown, thrown aside. Um, and it's clear that, that now our 2020 targets for reducing carbon pollution are also out the window. You know, the Environment Commissioner said that without regulating the oil and gas sector, we, it, it would be impossible to meet um, the, our, the 2020 targets that Canada has set in Copenhagen. And those are very weak. They are weakened even further to match the, the American one. Um, and and it's, we simply cannot meet that target if we let oil and gas, um, the oil and gas sector, which has the highest emission and the fastest growing emissions, if those continue to grow, we can't meet the 2020 target. So that's promise number three broken. Um, and as you say, you know, there, there's a certain amount of deception going on here because the U.S. has regulated its oil and gas sector. And it has regulated, most importantly, the largest source of emissions coming from the U.S., which is the coal, which are coal-fired power plants. And Canada hasn't done either. It hasn't regulated its oil and gas sector, which is also its largest source of, of greenhouse gas emissions. Dale, we, uh, we only have a couple of minutes here. I would like to ask you one more final question before we go to our, our music break here. Again, we're speaking to Dale Marshall, who's the National Program Manager for Environmental Defense, live from Peru at COP20. Um, my, my final question for you is a bit open-ended, which is just uh, sort of pulling from the fact that uh, over the last few weeks, uh, in addition to the information we'd be getting from COP, which is lukewarm frequently, uh, but we have seen a lot of uh, uh, articles about uh, a recent drop-off in oil prices. Uh, I, I know that a lot of internet sites were reporting that vape was the word of 2014, but around here it's been divestment. That's been the buzzword that we've been hearing everywhere. My final question for you is, dis despite the fact that it, it's definitely not time to take the pressure off, if anything, it's time for more pressure. But given recent events, do you feel positive? Do you feel like we're winning? Um, I, I feel like we're moving in the right direction. Um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic for Paris. You know, I was in Copenhagen. That was devastating for, you know, quite frankly, for the environmental community, but more importantly, for those people who were at the forefront of climate change. Uh, you know, five years later, we're now on the ramp up to, you know, the next Copenhagen, which is Paris next year. Um, I think we have to um, continue to push. I think we have to be con continue to be hopeful, uh, but I also think that um, that we cannot put all our eggs in the, in, in the basket of, of UN negotiations. Um, as, as you mentioned earlier, I think the focus has to also continue to be what we can do domestically 
what we can do at the provincial level, what we can do at the municipal level. And I think um, seeing action is just as important, if not more important, than, than, than negotiating and signing deals uh, at the international level. All right, Dale, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. All right, have a great day. Again, that was Dale Marshall, National Program Manager for Environmental Defense, live from Lima, Peru, talking about COP20. We're going to go to our first music break here on The Green Majority. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Ocean currents out to sea The warm wind comes calling Dusty streets are stained and sour But no matter now Orange blossoms, April air It's Saturday for only Cobblestones and open roofs The secrets spill out This is Darren Kayster, host of The Green Majority. The Green Majority is now so much more than just a radio show. You can learn more about what we're doing and find out how to support us at greenmajority.ca. 
All right, and we are back. We're going to go to our second feature in just a moment, which is uh, uh, with a couple of Canadian musicians who sing inspiring songs, Stefan, uh, about good habits like not throwing garbage everywhere. That is a good habit. But before we do that, thank you very much for stalling for me this morning. As no I worries. was uh, unfortunately, uh, apparently walking is not as fast as biking. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize how exceptionally much slower it was. So uh, if, if anyone was wondering, that was uh, Stefan walking into an empty studio. And uh, the part that I heard, excellent job, completely well, ad-libbing with no notice. Well, you know, the, 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 when, as soon as you had to cop, it's like, okay, let's see how long I can talk about this. I thought it was, uh, you know, try to, try to inform the readers there. And by readers, I, of course, mean listeners because this is the radio. <laughs> And all of that and not even entirely awake yet. Let's give him a hand. This uh, next piece, in this piece you're about to hear, journalist Christina Henke speaks to two talented Canadians whose mission is to inspire our youngest generation to care for the earth. Here's Heather Walter and Eric West, brought to you by Christina Henke. As international delegates are meeting at the United Nations Climate Summit in Lima, Peru, and the World Bank places Canada among the three countries in the world with the highest per capita consumption of electricity, most Canadians express extreme concern about what's to become of the land, water, and air they rely on for survival. Two Canadians living almost at opposite ends of the country have for the last quarter century banded together to make their voices heard. By singing songs about the environment, Their special brand of environmental activism targets young people across North America. This fall, Heather Walter, who lives in Alberta and is an environmental educator, and Eric West, who lives in Newfoundland and is a guitarist and songwriter, once again combined forces and went on tour in Canada's easternmost province. It marked the 25th anniversary of musical collaboration for this award-winning duo. Earlier this fall, I spoke with them from Toronto during their stop in Grand Falls on their performance tour of Newfoundland and Labrador. If you need someone to help with the cleanup, give us a call, we'll be there. When there are things that need to be done now, we'd like to show that we care. It's no small talk a little bit about how to get the message across about the natural environment and how, you know, kids, I assume it's mostly for kids, but maybe you're trying to reach adults as well. How do you get that message across and how do you still make it fun? How, how do you still maintain the artistry? So it's not propaganda, it's not ideology, it's not politics necessarily. I think a lot of it is, I, I don't think anyone will come to care about the natural environment unless they feel some sense of connection, a sense of it being um, something that they enjoy and that they love to take part in. So a lot of the stories and the songs that we tell are of getting out into the natural world. And so it's not so much about preaching what to do, although we do have some fun songs. One is the Garbage Blues, and I think, again, it's through humor there that we get across this idea that um, it's a drag when there's garbage all over the place. And so let's, you know, work together and make this place more beautiful. When I woke up one morning and I couldn't see the ground And everywhere I looked there was garbage all around I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what I'm gonna do Oh no, I got the down in the dumps Oh 
take a walk in the woods to clear my head But when I got there, I found garbage instead Oh no, well we're paying our dues, oh yeah We got the down in the dumps, overflow garbage blues When I hear you've got a place to live that's clean and nice then listen to me, honey, please take my advice And keep it clean and you can't lose Oh no, or you'll have the down in the dumps Overflow garbage blues Yeah, you'll have the down in the dumps What we, what we hope we bring to our performances together uh, is a sense of joy of place and pride in place and that there are so many reasons to celebrate what is beautiful about Newfoundland and Labrador and all of the wildlife that we share this place with. I wonder if you can tell me what you think are the most pressing issues facing us today. What, what do you worry about? Well, actually, just on this tour, we're starting to see signs up on the side of the road about fracking, which has become a very uh, important topic in this province, as it is perhaps all over the world. So there's actually an anti-fracking movement that's uh, taking place in one part of Newfoundland now. And so, uh, who knows, maybe uh, that will be a motivation to write a song. There was a strong movement, anti-fracking movement, right? Yes. Certainly there was a lot of concerns about it a couple of years ago when they were thinking about doing some fracking just on the edge of uh, Grossmoor National Park. And I think they backed off from that because of the number of people that were against it. It seems to be coming up again, so no doubt uh, a number of artists will be uh, involved in expressing their viewpoint on the topic. What about you, Heather? Is fracking at the top of your list of concerns as well? I think for me, coming back, not as frequently as I'd like to, but when I do come back, I do see that there's an influence from the oil industry just generally that is, has brought more affluence to the province, which is you know, not a bad thing, of course, but I think one of my greatest concerns about how we approach solutions to the, the environmental problems that we face is this increasing polarization of the issue so that there is this really black and white portrait by on both on, on on all sides really you know unfortunately the you know the environmental movement is portrayed in a, by those who are are lobbying for the oil and gas industry the environmental movement is portrayed as a tree hugging you know completely irrational group of people and 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 vice versa, you know, we, there's not an acknowledgement that we actually are dependent on oil and gas. And unless we're willing to make very direct sacrifices individually and as a society to curb our appetite for oil and gas, and, you know, there obviously is a role for government to invest in alternative energy, and we have to support that. But, but really, it's not as black and white an issue as I think everyone likes to portray it. And we have to all be prepared to acknowledge that there are ways we can do things better, but that we are dependent to, to a certain degree on fossil fuels. We just have to lessen that dependence and find a way to not move forward at such a fast clip that we're doing things that are destructive to the natural world. You know, what strikes me is that often when people discuss things, 
they're trying to convince each other of that they're right, and there are all these data available, and you know they're trying to convince each other of how this is right and how this is wrong. And I think the wonderful thing with music is that it becomes emotional. So it doesn't matter anymore what the data are so much. It's it's really about how people feel. And often when people have dug in their heels in debates and all of that, they don't even listen to each other anymore. And I think the wonderful thing with music is that it loosens people up. So is that something that you're doing consciously? Well, I think uh, one thing that we try to do with our music is encourage people to explore the outside, to get emotionally involved in nature. We have songs about rivers, and we have songs about the ocean, and it's not necessarily sort of saying anything pro or con when it comes to the environment, but just simply celebrating it and creating the emotional attachment. And I would say, just to add to that, that... I think both Eric and I would say that we have done our job well if after our show, kids get out into the natural world. They, they appreciate more uh, strolling along the, the beach with their family or getting out into the woods and doing a bit of camping or getting on a river and canoeing or kayaking. I mean, honestly, what we do is hopefully just a spark to get kids outdoors. You've probably heard the expression nature deficit disorder, which is one of the, I think, the greatest threats to kids these days, which is that they're just not connecting with the natural world in a very real way, not through watching a National Geographic special on television or or through even hearing our concert. I mean, you know, although our show celebrates the natural world, really what we hope it does is just is a springboard to get kids outdoors and, and feeling positive about time spent in, in the natural world. My special place is an island in the sea Where I can go with friends I know And really feel I'm free In my special place I never have a care I guess that's why I'm happiest when I'm there My special place is a meadow in the wood Where I can play and dance all day It makes me feel so good In my special place There's lots of things to share I guess that's why I'm happiest when I'm there My special place is a little rippling stream Where I can climb up on a limb Sit and simply dream In my special place There's magic everywhere I guess that's why I'm happiest When I'm there That's really pretty That's really pretty, yeah well, I wish you safe travels and a lot of fun for the remainder of the tour. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Christina. It's been great talking right. to you. So thanks very much, and um, all the best to you. Thank you, And I'll too. talk to you another time. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Singer Heather Walter and guitarist Eric West perform original songs about the environment. I reached them during their most recent tour of Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks to CBC radio producer David Newell in Grand Falls, Newfoundland for recording the interview in the CBC studio. I am a river flowing to the sea I hope that one day my waters can run For the Green Majority, I'm Christina Henke. And thanks again to journalist and contributor Christina Henke for uh, producing that piece for us. Uh, Christina does uh, about once every six or eight weeks or so she'll contribute a piece. They're always very well produced and we very much appreciate her help. You can learn more about uh, Christina on our website, uh, greenmajority.ca. There's a section for contributors. We have a little bit of information about her background. Uh, Very interesting person, actually. She has a, a number of other projects she's been involved with. Uh, very cool thing. So you can learn about her and all the other contributors. Of course, we have Tim Nash, uh, who comes in once in a while, and Angela Bischoff from OCAA. We have some folks from Toronto 350, although we, we had to skip them last time. So we're due to have uh, uh, Kai or uh, or uh, Stu or Milan or somebody come in uh, soon, but they've been very busy recently uh, as well. So we'll have them in too. Lots of other stuff. Uh, actually, I was just uh, uh, talking to, to you, Stefan, there about uh, all the stuff we've been doing recently. We had some really good success uh, the last week with a couple of our videos. We mentioned yeah. that last week. Uh, but really, things have really felt like they've been uh, coming together. I think uh, we, we would agree uh, mm-hmm. on, on that. You've been feeling good about the, the recent stuff we've been doing. Feeling good. Awesome. So we have uh, a couple more uh, things for you here, which is just to mention uh, that uh, the show post may be a little bit delayed today, but we're going to get it up because we have our exciting CSI uh, holiday party tonight. So apologies today yes. all around. I think. <laughs> uh, however, we are not taking any break. You can expect 52 shows a year. This year, as every year, we'll be here, I believe. We're not quite on Christmas Day this year, although I have done it. Uh, but stay tuned. We'll be we'll be broadcasting right through the holidays. So if you're sitting at home with some spiked eggnog, still if it's Friday morning between eleven and noon here in Toronto or or one of our wonderful syndicates, we will still be having fresh shows for you every week. Uh, also, the other thing is that uh, in addition to some of our lovely existing contributors, we're also looking for potentially some more. So if you happen to be in the Toronto area, or if you're not even in the Toronto area, and there's a a, a way in which you would like to contribute, we're we we've been off the volunteers for a while, only mm-hmm. just for just for the sake of uh, scheduling it was it was easier to do it but uh, we're opening back up so if there's something you think you could contribute whether it be in an online on air contribute to some of our YouTube content uh, just help send us information there's a number of things you could do if you've got some time uh, to help out with the, the show in any factor in, in any of our uh, myriad of different things that we do you can go ahead and let us know and the best way to do that again is at justagreemajority.ca do that through the website there's a contact us form there let us know uh, that you're interested. You don't even necessarily have to know what you want to do. You can just say, I've got a little bit of time. What would you like some help with? And uh, we'll see if we can get you sorted. That'd be great. We'd appreciate the help. Uh, without further ado, though, we're going to go to our second and final music break. We'll come back in a minute to hear from Kevin Farmer. So uh, without further ado, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We'll see you in a minute.
This is Darren Kayster, host of The Green Majority. Green Majority is now so much more than just a radio show. You can learn more about what we're doing and find out how to support us at greenmajority.ca. on the Green Majority. You're listening live, potentially, if you're in uh, Toronto. If not, you might be listening on one of our wonderful community radio syndicates all across the country, or you could be on our podcast, which is on mm-hmm. SoundCloud, which, in addition, Stefan, to meaning we will never again lose our podcast feed, for those folks that have been listening for a while and were frustrated that the iTunes feed died twice in the last five years, that will never again happen. The double bonus of that is that SoundCloud means that we get, like, really cool-looking graphics. Nice. Um, it's really nice, actually, yeah totally cool but without further ado we're going to go to the uh topical and poignant kevin farmer the floor is yours <laughs> oh brother if i ever love if i ever once live up to this hype let me know um, <laughs> if nothing else it's just an opportunity for me to use my thesaurus every week <laughs> <laughs> yeah like last week without further philandering um, <laughs> that one's never gonna die i, think. Yeah, I right. did i did explain to you why that that was not a miss a misspeak i know but it still doesn't make you don't any, buy it, it anyway. doesn't make any All damn right, sense uh, so anyway, hi everyone and uh, uh the news this week is of course uh, COP20 in Lima, the Conference of the Parties for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. 
And this is definitely the news of the week, and you could be forgiven for not knowing that if you've been paying attention to mainstream media, because they, of course, are not paying attention to COP20 in uh, in Lima. Um, so as Stefan mentioned at the top of the show, and I'm just probably, but I'm just repeating this. The, the, the what's going on in COP20 in Lima is uh, is uh, these are the these are the draft negotiations to replace for a replacement to the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, and it's what's going on in Lima is important now because uh, we hope to the, the the these are the draft agreements that will be finalized next year in Paris at COP21, and that will be the replacement to the Kyoto Protocol. So that will not happen. We we will not accomplish anything in Paris next year that isn't in the draft stages now in uh, in Lima. We're not going to all show up in Paris next year and and pull a binding ag- uh, agreement um, out of thin air. <coughs> Excuse me. That work is is underway now. It is hugely important. Um, we're, we're locked into, it seems, 1.5 degrees of average warming right now. There doesn't seem any way to, to avoid that. That's about twice the amount of warming we've already experienced. Uh, and credible people are saying we're not even in this anymore to keep it below 2 degrees of warming. Right now we're just trying to see if we can keep it below 4, uh, which, which would just, I mean, that would just be bad all around. Um, a very unpleasant and potentially uninhabitable, uninhabitable world. So it, it's, it, it, of course, it's very shocking that we're not uh, getting much coverage of this. Democracy Now!, the show that uh, airs every, every day of the week, but also it's the show that precedes us every Friday. They've been broadcasting from Lima all week. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any Canadian uh, mainstream media news there at all. Uh, and and if you, if you go, I mean, if you, our major newspapers are not covering this, and, and Power and Politics are preeminent. Uh, current affairs show on CBC seems to have made it through the. I'll, I'll see by the end of tonight if they've made it through the entire week without covering COP twenty. But they seem to be well on their way. I, I just want to jump in because uh, I'll I'll do what you usually do, which is uh, to put a fine point on that two to four degree uh, warming point. Is that when we're talking about keeping it under two degrees warming and keeping it under four, we're essentially talking about the difference between Russian, playing Russian roulette with a gun with six chambers with two bullets in it or five bullets in it. Mm-hmm. Either scenario is horrifying. And people should really be aware of what those numbers mean. Uh, when we're talking about well, two degrees, four degrees doesn't sound bad. No, either of those numbers are terribly bad. It's just how ridiculously terrible bad we're talking about. Uh, yeah, it, it, we're, we're exactly. We're trying to. It's like triage at this point. We're we're just trying to see how you know uh, how how well we can try to minimize the damage. So I'm just gonna do what I <laughs> do. What is pretty much my my only role in life anymore, which is to. Uh, uh, criticize mainstream media and push back against some Harper government talking points. Um, and incidentally, last week I watered down a perfectly good piece of sarcasm uh, when I said uh, the Energy East pipeline does not include a proposal to reverse the flow anywhere. It does. I thought it did. I just couldn't confirm that before the show. So it was entirely appropriate to compare uh, reversing the flow in that pipeline to the reversal of the flow in in uh, in Ontario and Quebec, the reversal of political will to deal with uh, upstream uh, impacts from pipelines. So another thing I commented about the other week was um, that Stephen Harper, the president of France, of, uh, of France, Francoise Hollande, spoke to Parliament and essentially uh, outed Stephen Harper uh, publicly in Parliament for not doing much on climate change. And, and Hollande will be, uh, of course, the host of COP21 next year in Paris, where we hope to get a binding commitment to, um, uh, a, a binding commitment to replace the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, and I commented that Stephen Harper said something that I thought was just scandalous in the press conference following that interview. And I, I just have this clip. I want to play this for everyone because I was not making this up. As you know, uh, 
since we came to power, actually, for the first time in the last few years, Canada has been moderating and reducing its greenhouse gas emissions. We've been accomplishing this by a sector-by-sector sector regulatory approach. Um, we have created the cleanest electricity sector in the developed world, as 80% of emissions are uh, created through clean electricity. We're the first major country in the world to ban the construction of traditional coal-fired electricity generation, and what we have is being uh, phased out. Uh, so, look, I think we have a good story to tell, but we recognize, as obviously does France, that there's a lot of work to be done at the international level to get what all of us want, which is a global agreement that will create uh, binding uh, obligations on all major emissions. So he did. He said that we have uh, banned coal-fired power plants, <laughs> except that we have not. We have not done that. And when he says Canada, when the Prime Minister of Canada says Canada has taken an action, I think it is reasonable to assume he is saying uh, that this action was accomplished by policy at the federal level. What else could he mean? But this, has, this, this, is just, this just did not happen. What he, is re- what he is doing here is taking credit for Ontario closing uh, their hour, because we're in Ontario, our coal-fired power plants. Um, this, was, this was the largest single reduction of greenhouse gases uh, emissions in North America when this was done. And this was a few years ago now. Uh, so so even, even in that regard, Ontario has been kind of like resting on its laurels and touting that. It was a great accomplishment, without a doubt, but... You know, what have you done for us lately <laughs> is kind of the question. But what's really interesting about this is that not only not only was this not a federal action, but the federal government, the Harper government, registered trademark, <laughs> opposed this and ridiculed this every step of the way. And for a, a really good response to this particular line, uh, if you go to the November 3rd episode of Power and Politics at the one hour and 40 minute mark, Evan Solomon does an interview with Dwight Duncan, who was a member of the McGinty government that made this decision, and you will hear a very or a a an, an, a, 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 a more than slightly exasperated Dwight Duncan uh, responding to or commenting on how the Harper government resisted this uh, and ridiculed it, and now and now they're they're taking credit for it. Uh, so now the other talking point I want to push back on is uh, if you've been listening to the news, you might have heard. Uh, this exchange that happened in question period uh, where, and I, I hope I have this queued up properly, where um, Megan Leslie, the environment critic for the NDP, is, uh, is asking Stephen Harper about um, our ever, ever in the future commitment to regulating the, the oil and gas sector. When will this government finally take climate change seriously? Mr. Speaker, specifically to the issue of uh, oil and gas regulations, this government's position has been clear that we want to see oil and gas regulations on a continental basis, given the integrated nature of this industry. Mr. Speaker, with the current conditions in the oil and gas sector, this government will not consider unilateral regulation of that sector. Earlier in question period, the Prime Minister said that he will not regulate GHG emissions from the oil and gas sector. Will the Prime Minister confirm that he is in fact breaking his promise to regulate the oil and gas sector? Very clear, Mr. Speaker, in terms of regulating the oil and gas sector, it is something we would like to do, but that we must do on an integrated basis in a continental economy. 
frankly, Mr. Speaker, under the current circumstances of the oil and gas sector, it would be crazy. It would be crazy economic policy to do unilateral penalties on that sector. We're That's clearly right. not going to do it. All right. So <laughs> that would be crazy. Regulating the oil and gas sector. He said it twice. That would be crazy. Um, uh, look, I think we can peel the, the political fig leaf off of these protestations at this point. The rationale changes from you know year to year, month to month, but the, the outcomes stay the same. So I think we can finally admit that uh, Stephen Harper is not going to regulate the oil and gas sector. And I just want to say, called it. <laughs> <laughs> because it was the other week, and I don't know if I do this ever, really, but I'm just going to toot my own horn. And I called this the other week, and I said, look, if Stephen Harper wasn't going to regulate the oil and gas sector, not even to get the precious Keystone XL pipeline approved, then he wasn't going to do it for anything. And clearly we're not going to do it for anything. Because you have to remember, this is in the wake of just really a devastating report, the fifth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, essentially you know, saying, look, we're just up against the wall on this. This is absolutely critical. We just have to take action now. Um, so, of course, regulating the oil and gas sector, now that would, be, that would just be crazy. Um, uh, um, you, you know, uh, they and it's you know, uh, runaway climate change <laughs> that's not crazy at all. <laughs> There's no economic impacts to that. So, a couple of things to push back here. Uh, you know, we keep getting told over and over and over again that Canada is taking a leadership role on climate change. Uh, Leona Gluka is saying that or said that this week in in uh, in Lima. Um, so that's that's very interesting. Clearly, we're not taking a leadership role. But in that little clip, Stephen Harper said, look, we are not going to impose unilateral penalties on that sector, uh, given the current circumstances. Unilateral action is uh, often a sign of leadership. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to lead on something, you're taking the first action on that issue, sometimes known as unilateral action. <laughs> Which we will never take. We won't take it. We won't act unless it's in lockstep with the U.S. So much for that. They're moving on without us. Uh, we won't act until the major emitters come to the table. China came to the table. Doesn't get any bigger than that. Well, we're still not. We're still not. You know, if you're only going to take action because everyone else is taking action, that's called following. <laughs> it's unilateral disaction, unaction, <laughs> lack of action. We're, we're, yeah, so uh, the so Leona Gluka has said a few things in Lima that I just need to push back on. Uh, you know, she is talking about this sector-by-sector approach, which Stephen Harper has now just resoundingly disavowed. It's a sector-by-sector approach that just will never, ever include the largest sector and the fastest-growing sector. Um, she, she, has, uh, she has arrived there touting our... Um, our accomplishments for decoupling growth from emissions, which was other people refer to as the recession. Uh, so we're we're taking credit for the recession. <clears throat> we're taking we're still taking credit for automobile emission uh, regulations that were forced upon us by action in Washington. Again, that was not leadership at all. That was that was another act of following. Uh, and and we're we're making some commitment to to further regulate uh, 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 HFCs. Maybe I should come back to that next week. Um, the, the thing, the, there is a comment that Stephen Herbert did make af- in, in the press conference with uh, Francois Hollande, uh, where he talks about how we're phasing out future coal. And um, there's some, there is some truth to that. The, there is a, a federal uh, regulation to co- that was put out in 2012, I think, to um, eventually uh, impose carbon capture and storage on new coal-fired electricity in Canada uh, in, in coming years. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Uh, first of all, that's a business as usual scenario, uh, or it means we still burn fossil fuels. Um, and carbon capture and sequestration is an entirely unproven technology. It is completely unproven. So our commitment to the future is to commit to uh, retrofitting plants and outfitting new plants with an entirely unproven technology, which might turn out to be absolute nonsense. And, and it makes only about as much sense as committing to nuclear because we'll figure out a way to store that waste eventually. Because what if sequestration works for 20, 30, 40, or 50 years, uh, and, and then we find these um, geologic structures that we're trying to inject carbon into just aren't stable. It's not going to stay there forever. And then it's like, oh, okay, so we now have, you know, Five, five, you know, some number of decades of carbon waiting to be emitted, that that is has now carried us well past any any sort of sensible emissions limit. So, so that's the, um, you know, that's the extent of our commitment to future action. Uh, and I thought so, um, so, so the Stephen Harper they they had the the conservative Christmas party. <laughs> Uh, recently in Stephen Harper's band, The Van Cats. Hey, I bought a CD, Kevin. I'll, I have to admit. Well, they... Um, I didn't. I'm lying. <laughs> they, 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 Stephen Harper's uh, uh, band uh, did a bunch of cover songs. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. And I thought, honestly, they missed a golden opportunity to do a Pink Floyd cover. We don't need no regulation. And they just... <laughs> They just utterly passed up a, a golden opportunity. So I thought that I would uh, respond with a, a non-cover of Pink Floyd in keeping in the theme of uh, politics in Canada this week regarding regulations. It's the season. Because that's almost the only commentary you can make anymore on this topic. I would just like to point out for our for our non studio audience at home that that entire time Kevin had the biggest giant grin on his face. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wish we could have shared it with you. It was wonderful. We are unfortunately out of time, but thank you as usual every single week, Kevin Farmer. I just have a final quick comment. I think we have about a, a minute left. Um, one of them was. Um, Stefan, I know you you uh, used it as ammunition to stall time while I was late this morning. Yes. But we did uh, we have been working very hard on a good cop video this week. So yes. I don't know what you said about it, but uh, just as a recap, we do. If people have uh, you know they're hearing from a lot of a lot from us about the cop process, uh, we were putting together a, a video explaining basically uh, the quick what is it around I think it's around four and a half minutes. Yeah, about four and a half. Uh, explaining basically a quick overview of the history of cop. So um, we'll be able to look forward to that soon. Is it maybe. I, I, I promise the I promise the listeners early next week. Early next week, yes. okay. Well, um, it is, it's an, it's been an insane week. It'll be a little bit of a catch up for the background because we're going to keep talking about this for a few weeks. Uh, the other thing was, I think I just picked our next one, which is we're just going to basically spend an entire show pulling clips of Stephen Harper saying things that are in direct refuti- refutation of other things that he has said. That sounds like good that good could time. Yeah, it could be fun. Uh, the other thing we're going to be doing uh, over the next week is uh, uh, updating a whole bunch of our uh, whole bunch of our uh, media. We've got. Um, 
uh, a few more specific focuses of types of content we're going to be putting out. So look forward to that. If you, uh, as we mentioned before, just as a final call out, we've got a whole bunch of uh, new videos uh, on our YouTube channel. You can check out. We're uh, back on iTunes. You can check that out. We have an endorsement section. If you uh, have two minutes and you want to just uh, leave us a nice note, uh, Stefan, we've uh, occasionally had people actually sending us postcards thanking us Ooh, for wow. the show, which is really nice. Um, and I do really appreciate that. But uh, even easier way to do that, you can do that uh, on the website as well. So greenmajority.ca is the place that you can interact with us, suggest content, send us news articles, contribute to my blog of media failures, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of fun things at greenmajority.ca. But that's it. All the time we have for for this week. So thank you very much to all of our guests, contributors, uh, to Kim Farmer and uh, Stephen Hostetter for joining me in the studio. And that's it this week for the Green Majority. See everybody next week.